Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. This episode of Seismic Sound Off is sponsored by Ion Geophysical. Ion Geophysical is a pioneer in full waveform inversion, an advanced model estimation technique that reduces exploration risk while enabling more effective development decisions. The ION suite of FWI technologies provide highly accurate models of the subsurface by utilizing the entire wave field, powering deeper and more robust model estimation across a range of acquisition configurations. Learn more about full waveform inversion by typing ION FWI, I-O-N FWI into your favorite search engine. For this episode, I speak with John Etchen, a Virgil Kaufman gold medal winner and upcoming distinguished lecturer for quarter three and quarter four of 2019. John and I discuss the current capabilities of depth imaging, the limitations of full waveform inversion, his upcoming DL tour, how his time at Stanford and the Amico production research company impacted his career, and more. John Etchen received a Bachelor of Science degree in Geophysical Engineering from the Colorado School of Mines and a PhD in Geophysics from Stanford University. During his studies, he had the good fortune to work on a wide variety of topics in seismic imaging and data processing while learning from his mentors John Clairbout and Norm Blystein. He began his industrial career at the Amico Production Research Company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In Tulsa, he had the opportunity to work on a wide variety of topics and learn from leading researchers such as Dan Whitmore, Rusty Alford, Kurt Martford, Ken Kelly, Sam Gray, and many others. In 2008, he and Carl Ragone were awarded the Virgil Kaufman Gold Medal for their work in Wide Azimuth Marine Seismic. In late 2011, John was appointed Distinguished Advisor for Seismic Imaging at BP. John currently serves as assistant editor for geophysics and continues to work in the upstream technology organization at BP. Now for our conversation. Well, you are, you're going to have the, the honor of being an SEG distinguished lecturer for the third and fourth quarter of, of this year. Could you provide the listeners just a little bit about what the talk is going to be about and, and just a little bit about what you're going to be traveling the world talking about? Yeah, I can do that. The issue of how to estimate velocities from surface seismic measurements has been something that's fascinated me for, well, now the better part of probably three decades, maybe even three and a half. Uh, I did my PhD thesis on it, and actually by the end of that, that exercise, actually was tired of the problem and didn't work on it for about a decade. Uh, but of course... Everybody knows how important this problem is, right? It is what we do to create high-quality images. We have to get a velocity model to do that. So through all of these decades of experience of mine of struggling with this problem, I've learned some interesting tricks of the trade that actually I think are not very well appreciated by the general geophysical population out there. So there's actually some really neat things you can do to understand whether you're getting the model right and how to adjust the model. You know, in today's world of full waveform inversion and all these sophisticated high-end computations, I think we kind of lose sight of some of the human skill in doing this. And so the lecture is going to give you a combination of the high-tech tools, which are sometimes very compute-intensive, you know, very glamorous from that perspective, uh, but with some just good old geophysical intuition and skill about how to tell when you're getting the model right and how to tell what nature is doing to you trying to disguise the subsurface from you. So the, the lecture is going to show you all the tricks of the trade that I have learned through the years in building high-quality velocity models. 
Well, those events will be very soon added to the website and you can hear all about your talk as I'm sure people are going to be clamoring for this talk. It sounds exciting. Okay. Well, in today's world of machine learning and all that kind of stuff, it'll be interesting to see if they want to hear about kind of how to do it, not just the modern ways, but also some of the old school ways too. I like even in your bio, you mentioned how uh, when you joined Amico Production Research in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you didn't want to focus on your thesis and did something different from most PhD students. Yep, that's absolutely <laughs> true. And I encourage everybody uh, when they join a company or join a new university or take a new job, don't just do the same old thing you were doing in whatever you're doing before, because uh, you'll need a break intellectually, emotionally, in many different ways. Take on some new challenges, right? Look at, look at, uh, look at some new horizons, learn some new things. And that's, that's what I did early in my career. You know, the list of names that you talk about in, in your bio that you engage with John Clare about, I mean, Ken Kelly, Kurt Marford, Sam Gray, you know, what kind of influence did connecting with, with these, you know, historical people in geophysics very early in your career, how did that impact, you know, the length of your career now looking back at it? Well, I guess, I guess there's a couple of different ways of coming at it. The nice thing was all of those people the intellectual giants that they are treated me like a peer. So I never felt like they were telling me how to do something and I just needed to mimic what they were doing. You know, all of our conversations were genuinely exploring things that they didn't actually know the answers to completely themselves. So I was always given an opportunity to throw out ideas, you know, good and bad. And uh, together we would work on them and advance those ideas. So, I mean, I had the rare privilege of working with people who, who genuinely saw the geophysical challenges as interesting scientific challenges to be cracked that had not yet, the story hadn't yet been fully written. And so I think if I ever felt we had gotten to a point where basically the story was fully written, it probably wouldn't be that interesting of a discipline to me anymore. But certainly all of those people that I mentioned in my, uh, in my bio, in my abstract, you know, they never saw it that way. They always saw the field as wide open, not almost closed. Just full of deep intellectual challenges that, that actually had a lot of practical impact if you could solve them. And so actually, I, I just had the good, the good fortune of having the intersection with them at, a, you know, at the times in their careers when they had accomplished a lot, but still felt like there was a lot to learn. That's a good place to be. So jumping into some of the topics you're an expert in, you know, what do you see as today's capabilities and today's challenges facing depth imaging? So that's interesting you ask. You know, in our company, we occasionally have, you know, have a chance to look back through the history of our custody of some of the major oil and gas fields of the world. And so we actually do have data that shows how seismic imaging and geophysics in general has been able to clarify, understand, characterize, just image the subsurface. And I think for many people who work in this field, you know, who are sort of day-to-day -day working and struggling with these geophysical challenges, it almost might feel like we're only making slow progress. But when you actually have the luxury of looking back over, say, 30 years, at some of the major oil and gas fields and major petroleum basins of the world and look at what we've accomplished. It is absolutely phenomenal. When I started my career, geophysics, I mean, you know, often we were called doodlebuggers. And actually was, I mean, we often took it as a complimentary term. It was meant as a derogatory term. What it meant was we were kind of fooling around. 
and you know the real disciplines were geology and reservoir engineering because they were working with cold hard facts the geologists might be working with rocks and outcrops and cores and things like that you know the reservoir engineers were working with wells and flow rates and production history stuff that's real hard data directly tells you something and geophysics was just making you know making stuff that you had to map and interpret right we, you know, everybody was an interpreter right uh, now that's much less true. We certainly still have geophysical interpreters. We still do interpretation. And I wouldn't say the seismic data is absolutely ground truth, quantitatively accurate. We haven't achieved that yet. Probably never will. However, the degree to which the images we make are just absolutely fantastic renderings of what's in the subsurface. That has made so much progress over the course of my career that it's just been amazing to see. And I'd encourage anybody who has a chance to look at kind of the historical view of some of these major petroleum basins of the world, just from a seismic perspective, just go look at that and appreciate how far we have come in terms of being able to very accurately portray what is in the subsurface with measurements based on generating and collecting sound waves. What subsurface imaging problems can be solved that time migration cannot? So it's interesting. I mean, there are certainly many basins in the world where the best hydrocarbon accumulations are fairly deep. And so the image of them is distorted by all of that overburden. And that overburden might be moderately complex. It might be crazy complex. And the industry does struggle a bit with the economics of interacting with the places that are really crazy complex. Uh, what I would say is, for the major salt tectonic basins of the world, we made a heck of a lot of progress to where all those hydrocarbon accumulations below complex allochthonous salt, we've done a pretty good job cracking 80 plus percent of that. Now, it requires a lot of effort in acquisition. It requires a lot of effort in processing. That has been the journey of the past two, two and a half decades, I would say. And the industry did put a lot of attention in that. There are certainly still petroleum basins in the world or likely petroleum basins in the world where the overburden is still so complex that it's difficult to be economically effective. It's not that we can't find accumulations. We just can't necessarily find economically attractive ones. Uh, and all of the basins that are sort of covered by volcanic deposits kind of fall into that category. We haven't done a good job penetrating, penetrating volcanics yet. Not, not, not in nearly as uniform a way as we have done with the salt tectonic basins. But both of those, time migration is hopeless. You're never going to get there with time migration. How are issues like complex velocity models, anisotropy, required computational resources addressed? Well, I think we found that we could, in some ways, we knew the math long before we were able to implement the math. So geophysics has always been hungry, as in wanting more than it could get in terms of computational resources. Because we, we knew the algorithms that would have beneficial impact on processing the data and rendering images. And so in some ways, we were waiting for the computational ability to show up. And I think that's still, still even true today, although it's funny, over the course of my career, you know, the computational capability that's available to me has expanded by more than a factor of a million. It's still not actually enough. And if you ask me if I had even another factor of a million, would I say, no, that's too much. We're done. Don't need that. No, it's not that clear. In fact, I could probably make use of another factor of a million. Now, I don't know, my career probably won't run long enough where I'll see another factor of a million in computational capability. But certainly everybody who's in 
certainly if they're in grad school or in the early part of their career, they're going to see that. They will see another factor of a million. So they should probably spend at least some of their time thinking big. You know, what are you going to do with that capability when it arrives? Go ahead and start thinking about the math that you're going to use because the computers are going to show up. They may not show up this year or next year, but as time goes by, and certainly over the course of decades, it, it does, does seem to have a track record of showing up. And a lot of people will quote to you that, you know, Moore's Law is running out of steam and, you know, it's getting harder and harder to manage kind of very large computational installations in terms of power and heat and cooling and all that stuff. Uh, but actually, all those arguments were true even, you know, 25 years ago when we were worried that we were going to run out of gas on computers. But in fact, we did. The, the computational ability that you could buy continued to expand at a, at a very rapid rate. In your citation for the Virgil Kaufman Gold Medal Award, it mentioned how uh, you had a deep appreciation of the elegance of mathematical theories, but it was coupled with this very willingness to use practical approaches as, you know, if you needed approximations, you were, you were happy with that. And it kind of struck me at the beginning of this interview, you talked about going back to people are important, that the geophysicist is important as well, and kind of going back to you as, as this practical bearer. Have you, you know, how do you see sort of this kind of the role of technology and, and advancement in geophysics coupled with just this need for the actual geophysicists to put their stamp on the work um, as well? Well, geophysics has always been a very practical field. Um, you know, in some ways, physics and math are more pure. And you can do them in a very academic, dry, theoretical, detached sense. And you can be good at it. And in fact, there's a Francis Muir, who is a, one of my mentors at Stanford. He had a saying, geophysics only attracts third-rate minds. And when he first said that, I was insulted because I thought, well, you know, I'm a geophysicist. I don't want to be thought of as a third-rate mind. But, you know, when I thought about it, it's really, and, and it's kind of true in U.S. academics, you know, number one is really physics, right? And number two is mathematics. Th those really do draw the top intellectual talent. Uh, however, it often stays relatively unapplied. It actually tends to not make that much difference to the human race. And what's worse is they often don't get very many opportunities to go find out how nature really does interact with their ideas and their theories. Whereas geophysics has that wonderful luxury of if you have an idea, we can put it to test pretty quickly. And in fact, because of all the things we know about electrical engineering and equipment and you know, just being out there on the real surface of the earth, trying to take measurements, trying to use those measurements to make inferences, the practical aspects of it are really quite, quite engaging and, you know, really, I mean, for a lot of people, I think, get them really excited and engaged. And that was always true for me. I hated things that were just dry and academic, right? I, I, I could learn that stuff if I wanted to, but if it didn't have any practical application or it didn't ever turn into anything I could go interact with in the real world, well, I was a lot less interested, whereas geophysics lets you interact with the real world. It lets you find out whether your idea is really right or not, and, and in a very quick and immediate way. And so, you know, the experiences that we had with kind of the wide asthma seismic revolution was actually one where, you know, in some ways, the mathematical theories, the physics was there and relatively well described. We weren't inventing new physics or new mathematics. In fact, we weren't even building new equipment in a lot of cases. We were just taking existing equipment and using it a different way to accomplish a different experiment, to get a different and hopefully much better result. And, and it was something that 
well, we probably spent more time thinking about it and trying to convince ourselves that, yeah, we could actually go to our management and get the money from them. Uh, and we were probably a little too timid even. We probably could have done it even earlier than we did. Because once we did go and try it, yeah, actually the math and the physics do work. But actually, until you go out in the real world and try it, you don't really know that. You don't really, you don't really, really know it until you go do it. And that's the beautiful thing about geophysics is we have to go do it. Whereas if you work in math or, you know, in high-tech particle physics and things like that, you know, you don't get that many chances to go out and test your theories in the real world. You're often waiting a long time to do that. Now, with us, you get opportunities, you know, not necessarily every day of the week, but certainly every year you've got another opportunity to test something. could see the appeal there. What subsurface results like the extraction of elastic properties would you like to accomplish in the future? Well, it's a good question to ask, to ask whether we need to know more parameters, which, which is certainly true. It, we would benefit by knowing more parameters. Or should we just know the same parameters that we you know, have been working with all these years with higher resolution and better, better accuracy, a better degree of quantification? And so I think the game is a mixture of both. It's, there's a big debate, I think, in the industry right now whether we should be dropping the acoustic world and moving into the elastic world. And I actually come down on the side of being somewhat cautious about saying we should go completely elastic in everything we do. Because the acoustic approximation has served us remarkably well through the years. Now, for certain things, it does not tell us what we want to know, right? I mean, if, if particularly if you're trying to do things like fluid discrimination in certain classes of reservoirs, you need to know the shear modulus better than what P-wave AVO can tell you. And so looking at things like converted waves or even direct shear to shear AVO probably could be a very valuable thing in those instances. But that is only a component of what we do in seismic imaging. So I, I think we have to balance our investment in doing computations and doing field experiments that are going to be fundamentally a lot more expensive to do if we're actually going to sample the shear waves well enough to do a good job with them, with spending our money doing a better job with the acoustic waves. So. You know, that, that's a big debate, I think, in industry right now. I know different companies, different universities are, you know, betting their activities different ways in that space. And I'm open to all of the cases. I'm, I'm not saying everything has to be full elastic from, you know, this year onwards and nothing else will ever satisfy. That's not true. We're still going to make good use of the acoustic world. And actually, a lot of the things that I see when I look at at least my company's portfolio one of the biggest demands that comes from those who actually have to plan and drill wells is they'd like to see better resolution. That, that's the thing that really they find limits their ability to make promises to their managers around how accurate they'll be with their predictions on how much reservoir they penetrate, whether it is containing the right fluid or not, uh, whether it is as thick and productive as they think it will be. It is, it's really the resolution question that often prevents us from being as accurate as we would wish to be. I was, I was speaking with John Britton recently, uh, who studies full waveform inversion and was helping out in the March TLE special section. And he was talking about how the uncertainty um, that we can mathematically calculate the uncertainty, but a lot of companies don't want to spend the extra money and time to, to be able to say to their manager, this is the the percentage that this is we're going to drill a well successfully here. How do you think about that topic of uncertainty in geophysics? 
Well, there's two sides of that coin. Uh, one is if you know you're going to be limited to a certain quality of result, and that quality of result leaves a space of uncertainty, a space of possibilities as yet dis, you know, not disambiguated, you probably do owe it to your managers to communicate the range of possible or probable outcomes. So I think managers, when they feel you are not able to be definitive in your, in your characterization, whatever that means, I mean, it might be a description of a reservoir, it might be a description of an overburden, it might be something about you know, how a well is going to perform or how close you're going to get to a certain target. I think they actually want us to communicate that. So it's interesting that in, in the remarks that you just quoted, that there was an attitude that we are afraid to communicate that or afraid to invest in computing it. But I would say, no, I think our managers are actually demanding that. They're expecting that. Now, the other side of that coin is if I'm going to spend money, time, resources, whatever it is, characterizing that uncertainty, one of the other possible outcomes is what if I spent that money reducing the uncertainty in the first place? And so I think our our own efforts in our company do take both sides of that coin. It, It is in instances where the money would be better spent fundamentally reducing the uncertainty, probably by getting better measurements or creating better images. That is often a more powerful lever on value than just communicating a result which is fundamentally not very well determined. So I I can tell you how wide the range of outcomes of a poor image might be. And, And actually, if I'm good at it, I might actually be right. You know, the actual result might fall within my range of communicated outcomes. However, wouldn't it be better if I could actually just characterize the subsurface accurately in the first place? So, so now you'll, it'll never be, it, it'll never be one at the exclusion of the other, right? We owe it to our managers to give the most high quality, well-defined estimate of what is in the subsurface that we can, and that will never be completely perfect. And so we also owe it to them to explain what the range of potential outcomes still is, even given that high quality result. So, so I don't think it's one thing or the other. You have to work on both. So I don't, yes, I think there is a feeling that as geophysicists, we're not good at communicating uncertainty. I think you hear people say that. But I, I don't think it's because the managers don't want it. I think they do want it. I think they expect it. Can we expect to see full waveform inversion coupled with accurate images in depth? Well, I'd say we already generate them in some circumstances. So certainly. And then the question is, I think what you're asking in a way is, can we expect to do that everywhere? I would probably turn back to the question of, if you give me sufficient data, I think we can certainly move further in that direction. Whether we can always guarantee it in every circumstance. I think of things like igneous provinces, where the things that you're, you might want to see might be quite subtle and quite heterogeneous in a way that does not look like stratified sedimentary layers that we're often used to in reflection seismic imaging. Oh, I suspect there's geological provinces where actually our, our simplified model of the physics just doesn't work. So I can't guarantee it everywhere. I, I think there's a lot of good hydrocarbon basins around the planet where that technology already works really well, and it will continue to improve and, and conquer more territory. So I, I think that's certainly true. What breakthroughs are needed for elastic inversion? So it's a good question. 
I think I think we fundamentally have to improve our recordings. Not not necessarily saying that instruments are bad per se. I would say instruments are expensive. And so what that causes us to have to do is get a very limited sampling of the wave field. When we do these kind of evaluations on synthetic data, where we have control and we can actually sample the entire wave field and use it if we wish, we can make demonstrations that these technologies work. It's when you go out in the real world and then use much more limited equipment than what you can do in a simulation, then I think we often find it is, it is not as satisfying. Now, one of the things is we're actually afraid to simulate the Earth in its complete generality, including all of the very slow propagating phenomena. But whether you're on the ocean bottom environment where you have a soft, soft water bottom or you're onshore where you might have potentially very slow propagating waves in the near surface, those are very computationally difficult to deal with. They're very dif difficult to simulate. And so often we shortcut that. But in the real world, you don't get that luxury. You actually have those waves in your recording. If you're going to do some sort of data-based inversion, uh, you're going to have to deal with that stuff. And I think right now, my best advice for dealing with it is sample it first. And that means you've got to get the equipment to be able to sample it, which means the kinds of data sample rates that we acquire now, not just time sample rates, but spatial sample rates, uh, probably need to increase you know, in a two or three dimensional sense by a factor of 100. What are your expectations for future acquisition and processing trends? Well, I think processing, processing is going to reach a decision point coming up in the next few years. And that is, do we continue along the pathway of doing complex physics, complicated numerical implementations, and then using inverse theory to make our estimates of the subsurface. So that's one pathway. That has been the dominant pathway of the past 30 years. And what has happened is we just generally improve the quality of the calculations we do, and we improve the level of the physics that we embed in our numerical calculation. That pathway, I would claim, is getting close to running out of gas. Because as we add more and more parameters to estimate, fundamentally the uncertainties in the un inversion and that and that's kind of in an inverse theory sense not in kind of what nature is telling us just in terms of the mathematics of inverse problems we make our inverse problems harder by doing that i think that has a chance of running out of gas then there are the proponents who would say we should look at this problem in an entirely different way and that is kind of the machine learning approach which is you would use techniques which are less directly tied to very numerically intensive implementations of computational physics and go more for things that draw kind of pattern matching data inference algorithms to build their estimates of the subsurface. You're beginning to see people have some success with those. I think, I think there's, still, there's still some chance that promise is overhyped and that it will not deliver everything we need. So I'm not going to predict that the computational physics approach is dead. I think it is trying to draw itself into a corner where every new advance requires an order of magnitude more compute and leaves the fundamentals of the inverse problem much more complicated to solve. And that's a problem. We're not making life simpler for ourselves. We're making it harder for ourselves. But I'm not sure the machine learning stuff really is going to deliver everything we want either. So there's, there's good work to be done to figure out what that pathway actually is. But, but we're going we're gonna to face a choice. Many other 
disciplines which are data intensive and are not like mathematics and physics, where you can kind of prove what the truth is, uh, they are all moving towards these empirical, empirical sciences, op- empirical observational sciences and machine learning. I think the thing is, we were all probably trained as mathematicians and physicists and engineers. And so we see the world through the lens of partial differential equations and inverse problems. So we're not moving as fast in that direction as some other sciences are. We'll see how it turns out. I don't know. This is my last question. You mentioned, you know, geophysics being a practical science, and that's what interested you over physics and mathematics. And that, you know, you have a chance to really make a difference in the earth and make a difference in people's lives. Is there some non-geophysics individual or subject or book that really influenced you coming up in the field um, that has helped you, you know, apply that to your, your day job? Well, I guess I, I like to draw, I mean, people will hear me, you know, but I like to function by analogy a lot, right? I, I think it's maybe a personal flaw of mine that I look for analogies in kind of anywhere in the world. Uh, so I, I guess I don't know that I'm going to say I know right off the top of my head, you know, a key individual or a key moment where I would say, you know, changed my life or strongly influenced me. But, but I like looking at a wealth of sources of things that allow you to draw inference by analogy. So I, I do that a lot. And it can come from anywhere. I think sometimes it comes from, you know, the world of, it can even come from the world of Hollywood, right? Like, you know, a favorite movie or something like that, where, where something about what you're facing kind of rhymes with something, you know, that is a popular story, I would say. So, so I, I do like to function by analogy, but what I guess I would say is I don't, I don't know that I have any heroes in that sense, other than the ones that I list in my biography. I mean, the, those folks are the folks who are my heroes because I had the chance to actually work closely with them. For people that I didn't have a chance to work closely with, I, I can't claim that they're my heroes. I just don't know. Um, but I, I, do, I do like analogies a lot. I like to think about analogies in other scientific fields in just in everyday life sometimes it it doesn't just have to be in math or physics or biology or chemistry it it can be in anything in everyday life that that i'll look at and think about and think is that an analogy for what i'm trying to think about now i'm kind of taken by how open you are about uh technologies working out not working out you know you just seem kind of uh you're interested in a lot of different ways to draw analogies you're open to different subject matters is that something you you cultivated in yourself very early on throughout your career? Because I, you know, in my professional life, I don't see a lot of people being so open. You know, it's like full waveform inversion is going to answer all our problems, solve all our problems. I don't, you know, it's just you seem very open to being wrong, being right. It's uh, it's well, refreshing guess, in a way. Yeah, I guess for that, actually, I I guess I will give credit to my graduate studies. I had the wonderful luxury of not just having a professor who is one of the leading lights of the field, but uh, actually what, what that professor would say is when you asked him what was his job, I think a lot of people would have thought John Clairbout would have answered that question by saying, you know, to revolutionize migration or revolutionize velocity estimation, revolutionize geophysical inverse problems. That's not how he'll actually answer the question. What he would say his job is, is to make famous geophysicists. Uh, and in a way, that's exactly what he did. And one of the ways that he did it was by giving us an incredible amount of freedom. What that led to was an environment where 
there were 15 other grad students in the program at the same time. And they were all, while both being very competitive with each other for you know fame and glory and all those kind of things and computer resources for sure, you know, actually very open about what they were working on. And so I had the wonderful luxury of, in some ways, not just learning my own thesis, but learning 15 to 20 other theses at the same time. And what you realize in an experience like that is don't, don't allow your mind to believe that the thing you're working on is God's gift to mankind. It might be, but it's actually probably not, right? It's probably just a pretty small piece of a very big puzzle. Learn to appreciate some of those other pieces. Look for value and in interesting things and learning and understanding from other people's work. And then when I went to work at Amico Production Research Company, the, the very same environment existed. Is It was a community of people that, while competitive with each other, I mean, they, they wanted you know, to be promoted. They wanted to be the famous geophysicist. They were also very open and they were willing to look for the, the joy and the beauty in other people's work as well. And so I guess I was just luckily the product of those environments that I learned. Actually, the, the fact is looking at it that way is much better for your own career than just trying to propel one idea. So many people try to propel their career on the back of one idea, FWI being a recent, very good example of people doing that. And what I would say is don't, don't do that, right? Look at, look at all of the joy in the complete field of geophysics as much as you can learn of it. You're actually much more valuable if you, if you have some more breadth. I'm not saying don't cultivate depth. It's okay to be an expert in some of those topics. That's fine. But don't assume those topics are, are the only God's gift to mankind because they're not, right? Look for, look for other gifts in other parts of our discipline and, in fact, in other fields like math and physics. Some of the things I've done have even come from astronomy. So look for, look for things in other scientific fields. Don't just assume the thing you're working on is, is the latest and greatest and will actually conquer the world. It might, and if so, hey, great, that's fantastic. But don't make that your only bet. Kind of sp spread your bets around. Be willing, to, be willing to learn from what other people are learning too. And, and I think I was just brought up in environments where that was true, where everybody did that. And, and so you, you kind of do that too. Well, that is a great place to end on. I love that thinking. We're going to be able to find you traveling the world in the third and fourth quarter of this year. Anything else you'd like to, to say before we, we go on our way? Oh, no. Have fun. I would say everybody out there listening, keep on cracking away on those complex imaging problems. Uh, you know, we've made a lot of great progress, but there's a lot more to go. So keep on, keep on hammering away on that stuff. You do the same. And uh, I appreciate your time today. This has been a lot of fun. Okay, thanks. At seg.org slash podcast, you will find the complete show notes for this episode. Follow Seismic Sound Off at seg.org slash podcast to hear new episodes or subscribe for free on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Ashley Rodriguez, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney with additional support from Kathy Gamble. Special thanks to Ion Geophysical for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.